America's debt has now grown so large that the annual interest on it now exceeds all the money the nation collects in taxes. This now traps the U.S. in a no-win situation. When I say get busy inflating or get busy defaulting, you quickly, when you, when you see 111% of tax receipts going to just true interest expense, if they deflate, tax receipts are going to fall. And if they deflate and tax receipts fall, the, Fed, the, the U.S. government and the Fed face a choice. Either the Fed prints the difference, which is already 11%, and it will grow as they deflate, or the United States government gets on TV and says, Treasury holders, we're not going to send you your coupon, or baby boomers, we're not going to send you your entitlements. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. Suddenly, the world is in a state of high anxiety. In the US, the monetary and fiscal stimulus spigots are turning off as the Fed threatens to start tapering in November and Congress devolves into gridlock over both the next stimulus package as well as the debt ceiling. Outside the US, long-standing stable political regimes like Angela Merkel's party in Germany are voted out of control. Add to this rising energy costs, petrol shortages, and power rationing across the globe, and the road ahead looks downright scary. How will this turbulence resolve? and how are the markets likely to react? To shoulder the challenge of making sense of this all, I'm thrilled to welcome Luke Groman back onto the program. Luke is the founder of the highly respected macro thematic research firm, Forest for the Trees. Luke, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me back, thanks for having me back on, Adam. It's great to be here again. Good, good. Well, we got just huge uh, kudos from our audience the first time you were on here, and there will be a well-deserved victory lap I'm going to let you take in just a few minutes here. Um, but as we kick things off, Luke, um, I just want to ask the first question I asked you last time, but it's how I like to kick off these discussions. What is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? <laughs> I think today's global economy and financial markets are in pretty uncharted territory. I think you've got a unique series of crosswinds um, ranging from the first bursting global sovereign debt bubble in 100 years to uh, peak cheap oil and gas uh, to supply chain problems to geopolitical tensions driving a reversal of the disinflationary trends of globalization, so deglobalization uh, occurring. Um, you've got COVID in, on, the, on the more near term uh, in terms of, I don't, I don't even know if we'll call it cyclical, but sort of more tactically that we've been dealing with and are maybe on the downside, maybe not. We've got some, some domestic political and labor market issues as a result of that. So I when you sort of factor all of these things and probably a few things that I that I forgot to list, but we'll probably touch on in the uh, in the course of the uh, interview, it's a very unique and potentially toxic uh, brew. And so then it comes down to a question of um, are they going to inflate or are they going to default? And I think ultimately that's what really when you go to these big cycles, it's 
once you get to too much debt, it's inflate or default. That's that's it. That's the way you work your way out of these things. And so um, a lot of these factors are putting uh, more pressure on this global sovereign debt bubble that was going to be a problem uh, in coming years, really regardless of what was what was going on um, demographically with some of the entitlements, et cetera. Uh, but with everything we've seen that I just listed, whatever time horizon that we were going to experience those issues over uh, has been compressed and brought forward. So here we are, and it really brings up this this question of, of, of you know, get busy inflating or get busy defaulting, as I tweeted the other day, to, to paraphrase one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption. So, All right. Um, so great summary context of where we are. Uh, let me just ask one question as a coda to that, which is, Everything you listed there, um, where uh, there were risks, there were there were threats to the current stability of the status quo. Um, how do they, if at all, justify today's record all-time high stock price or asset prices? So I think to me, it really comes down to um, where sort of least worst, right? So it's 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 the old saw about when a bear enters the campsite, you don't have to be faster than the bear, you just have to be faster than the slowest camper. And so everything I just listed amounted to a really big bear entering the campsite. And so for me, when I look at asset prices, I don't think we can look at them in, in a vacuum. I think we need to say, okay, um, which asset prices are faster than the bear? And I look at the bond market as sort of like, you know, the fat, slow kid who's very unathletic. <laughs> slow camper. Yeah. And, and he's going to have a really hard time getting away from the bear. And so if that's the case, the interesting thing is, is, is the bond market is, you know, $130 trillion, $150 trillion globally. Uh, it dwarfs all these other markets. Now, we can make the case maybe residential real estate is, is well, even then, you know, the mortgage market in the U.S. is, what, $10 trillion, $12 trillion, $14 trillion. So it, it dwarfs all these markets. And the point is, is that um, if all of this goes in a deflationary bent, these bonds are going to default en masse. Um, they're, they're, yeah, you can make the case I'd rather own capital structure, you know, the capital structure 101, I'd rather own the bonds and the equity if that's the case. However, with that said, if you have a mass default event or equity prices, asset prices fall in sort of this deflationary environment, sovereign tax receipts are going to collapse and, and they're already running below um, fixed, what we call real interest expense, which is just the entitlement pay goes plus the treasury spending in the United States, for example, is already more than tax receipts still with all the bubbles we have going on. So the punchline is, is that if they choose a deflationary outcome, then treasury bonds, sovereign debt, high grade, AAA rated stuff is not going to be, a, it's not money good on a nominal basis. Equities will, will fall further, no question, but then it comes down to, okay, what do you want to own? So it's bonds aren't a great outcome in deflation. And then if there's inflation, bonds are a terrible outcome. And so I think it really comes down to this view of, as I look at asset prices, it's not about do they make sense uh, on a PE basis, on a price of sales basis, on a, on a cash flow in, enterprise? There's almost no historical metric on which they make sense in a vacuum. 
However, in the context of a global sovereign debt bubble where Western sovereigns in particular, the U.S. in particular, needs rising asset prices to justify or to, to drive tax receipts, uh, there's a political economic question, which is asset prices don't make sense if the U.S. government is going to allow itself to default on treasuries for lack of printing money. And if the U.S. government is not going to let itself default on treasuries and entitlements to baby boomers for lack of printing money, then uh, the bond market's the fat kid who can't escape the bear. The bear. And we, we want, we're likely, we are seeing, we have been seeing for 10 years, as you look at the flows, uh, money flow out of the $130 trillion bond market into stocks, real estate, Bitcoin, gold. Uh, sort of everything that's that's been rising uh, faster than bonds have been rising over the last 10 years, the uh, last five years for sure. All right. Um, I like that framework of, of the bear at the campsite uh, <laughs> as, as we look at um, as asset classes, because it does have some explanative value for why things maybe have um, price pressure today that we don't think is being you know justified in a rational world. The rationality goes out the window once the bear starts tromping through the tents. Right? Um, all right. Well, uh, I'm going to blow up my uh, my long list of questions for you because we're already deep into it here. Um, before I do, though, I want to just give you kudos for the last time we had you on seven, eight or so months ago. Um, you did kind of make your call that, uh, you know, you thought on the inflation versus deflation uh, debate that that inflation was was more likely to win out. Uh, to be honest, I can't remember how much we got into sort of short-term versus long-term outlooks, but certainly um, in the short-term, inflation really kind of came raging back right after that interview. So I want to give you, you know, kudos for that. Uh, and if you were talking long-term, then just be quiet and we'll all assume. <laughs> we're talking um, but I want to pull up a tweet of yours here because it's, it's building on what you were just talking about. Uh, you say, normally recessions cure shortages and high prices. However, for the first time in the lives of anyone reading this, a recession will also force Western and Eastern sovereigns to default on their debt and entitlement obligations. Get busy inflating or get busy defaulting. That's the <laughs> reference to uh, Andy Dufresne from the Shawshank Redemption. Right. Um, so uh, let, let's dig a little bit further in here. So uh, if I understood what you, what you just said a few minutes ago, it sounds like, you know, sort of a binary path governments could go down here. They could go down the, the deflation route, which I was going to say, I would think no no country would willingly do because no politician can really run on that or get reelected after that. Um, but um, I will say China is uh, being much tighter, adopting much tighter policies than at least the rest of the Western world right now. So they might be an important exception. But when you wrote this, um, uh, just take a little bit more into uh, how, even if they want to inflate, are you saying even if they want to inflate here, that the next recession is going to force them to make these defaults on entitlements uh, and on their debt? Or are you just saying um, they have to make that choice between either just let deflation ripple through um, uh, or just print to the moon and, and meet all these obligations nominally, but the purchasing power might be nothing? So when it really comes down to something we really focus on with um, as it relates to that comment of, of get busy deflating or get busy uh, uh, or get busy, get busy inflating or get busy defaulting is 
We looked at uh, a, a report that came out about uh, a month, a uh, month and a half ago from the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee of the United States, or TBAC. So it's sort of a, a who's who of major executives in the private sector, uh, in you know the bond markets, financial markets, et cetera, that advise the U.S. Treasury about issuance, what's going on in the markets, et cetera. And the TBAC uh, issues a quarterly report, and it's, it's a tremendous report. It's available to the public. Uh, and it short, sort of lays it all out there if you know what you're looking for. And so one of the things that we had noticed recently, and, and we've been tracking this for a long time, is we don't consider the U.S.'s interest expense to be purely the best metric or the, the metric we should be looking at in terms of seeing uh, where interest expense is relative to tax receipts, right? So if we take a step back and say, you know, I've, had, I've had multiple investing graybeards tell me, Luke, no, no sovereign has a problem until they have to print the money just to pay the interest on the debt. And then it's over. Um, the market will react to that. You'll see high inflation. You'll see the currency weaken, et cetera. And so that was probably three or four years ago, those, those graybeards pointed that out to us. And, and at that point in time, US interest expense, particularly on a net basis, given the intra-agency stuff, was still de minimis because rates had fallen so low despite the high debt pile. And so sort of the headline read from most conventional economists is to say, see, there's no problem here. Our point was, is you can't look just at the debt, uh, the interest on, on the debt. You need to look at the interest on total obligations. And so what we highlighted was, if you look at the interest on the debt, the treasury spending is, is how TBAC breaks it out. And then you add to that what is effectively interest on the United States off-balance sheet entitlement obligations, which is not included in the debt, but is call it 100 to $200 trillion estimated in terms of total obligations. The pay-as-you-go portions, uh, the annual expense on entitlements is effectively the interest expense to float those obligations. So what we started doing was adding the interest expense plus the pay-as-you-go portion of entitlements. And what we found was that number was far more troubling. So as, as recently as 2018, that number was 70, 75%. Uh, and the punchline is post-COVID uh, between uh, the, uh, uh, the Fed raising rates in 18 and 19, um, raising interest expense, nominal interest expense between the demographics, between the treasury spending, which they lump, they lump in in the TBAC, the stimulus and some of this other stuff to basically keep the wheels on the cart. Uh, and then what entitlements have done, what tax receipts have done, the punchline is, is that right now, as of the third quarter of 21, true interest expense for the United States, treasury spending plus entitlement pay as you goes, is 111% of US tax receipts. That's just crazy. Even though US tax receipts are at all time highs and those all time highs influenced by uh, all time high asset prices across the board because the US uh, has allowed the system to evolve such that it is very, the marginal driver of tax receipts and consumption are both heavily dependent on asset prices. So it's incredible that you have this asset bubble across a number of different categories, but even with that, the United, the Fed still needs to print 11% of tax receipts just to cover true interest expense, let alone defense at $800 billion a year, labor department, education department, um, veterans benefits, which are uh, almost $200 billion a year now uh, as a result of the, uh, the uh, bad uh, 
policy choices, shall we say, over the last 20 years in the Middle East. Uh, all the other things that the government pays for are not included in that number. And so when I say get busy inflating or get busy defaulting, you quickly, when you, when you see 111% of tax receipts going to just true interest expense, if they deflate, tax receipts are going to fall. And if they deflate and tax receipts fall, the, Fed, the, the U.S. government and the Fed face a choice. Either the Fed prints the difference, which is already 11%, and it will grow as they deflate, or the United States government gets on TV and says, Treasury holders, we're not going to send you your coupon, or baby boomers, we're not going to send you your entitlements. And I, 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 politically, I don't think either one of those are palatable. Economically, neither one of those are palatable. And if we assume that neither of those are palatable, then we can, you sort of, it's, it's like the old... Uh, 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 Sherlock Holmes, right? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Once we once we rule out the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And so if we can rule out the impossible, which is that the U.S. government's going to get on TV and tell baby boomers they're not getting their money, tell U.S. Treasury holders they're not getting their interest payment or they're going to get haircut on it, if that's impossible and we rule that out, then what we have left uh, are one of a couple options. The most likely option is, is they've got to keep inflating everything, asset prices in particular, but uh, that will trickle down and, and, and uh, government spending, particularly if it uh, uh, goes for the real economy, will help inflate. There are some other options. They include some sort of big Manhattan Project type productivity driver, uh, nuclear cold fusion that gets <laughs> it rolled out and implemented over the next year or two, type of magnitude, something very revolutionary. That's um, kind of the, and then magic happens. And uh, then magic happens. Option. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's a more morbid scenario too, where basically you find a way to default on the boomers where, um, you know, some portion of them, you know, pass on and their assets, say the boomers hold about $35 trillion in assets, it's estimated at, go from them to their kids and their kids have a much higher marginal propensity to consume than the boomers do just given age and demographics, and, and that drives some growth as well. But failing those two, if we rule out that they're not going to default on boomers or entitlements um, or on, on interest, then they're going to have to inflate. And that's really why I say, you know, this cycle, we have never been in a position, at least going back to World War II, where the starting point of any recession is the U.S. government cannot make its interest payments out of tax receipts day one without the Fed's help. And that's never been the case before. And that's where it is. If you start from that first principle of analysis of everything we're watching, um, it's very, it's very eye opening. It's very um, shocking to be, to be, to be blunt. Yeah. Uh, God, so many directions to go in this. <laughs> um, just to add on to what you just said there, though, um, can you also say it's sort of unprecedented to be poised here, you know, whenever the next recession hits, where the Fed really can't raise interest rates without kind of nuking the economy. It, it's absolutely, it, it's absolutely the case. And it really is, um, you know, when you look historically at these inflations, historically, the way they've been stopped is by the Fed tightening or invoking a recession, right? So that we had multiple recessions throughout the 70s, right? You had this recession in 74, 75, you had recession uh, eight, I guess not all of a sudden, but so 70, 70, 74, 75, 80, 82, 
throughout this inflationary period, the Fed was introducing multiple recessions to sort of stop it from just spiraling away. They can't induce a recession. They can't. And there's the, the appreciation of this on Wall Street at the moment is still very, very narrow. That they are, if they try to stop this from happening again, because even with all of this craziness and inflation and asset price, they're still not covering the interest big. They, they cannot cover their fixed obligations without the Fed's help. Well, so so, yeah. so on, on that point, you you talked about the gray haired saying, "Hey, if you well, once the country can't meet its its interest expense without having to print money, it's game over." Right? Um, you're you're basically saying that's the case by the calculus that you use, where you're combining both the interest expense and the pay as you go part of the entitlements. So, it is it moot at this point? Like, has the Rubicon been crossed? You know, has the elephant been mortally shot and yet might just stomp around for a while, <laughs> but but that elephant's going to croak at some point? Are we there? I, th I think we have crossed the Rubicon. I think ultimately um, we were heading in that direction rel relatively rapidly. Uh, and then COVID happened. And, and post-COVID, it just, it sort of puts you so far past on a number of these metrics uh, as a result of, uh, of the economic response, right? I mean, we could have default, deflated then, right? They'd say, hey, if we'd have just closed everything down, close it, you're gonna have a massive defaulting of everything. You let ask, stock market would have gone to zero basically, right? Because you can't have stock markets open and close the economy associated with those stock markets. What's going to happen is, is every business owner out there with a 401k is gonna liquidate their stock to try to acquire dollars, and so they, they did what they had to do, they being the Fed and policymakers. However, uh, that crossed the Rubicon from the standpoint of now really the only policy choice is to get that debt to GDP back down to a level from which the Fed can normalize policy without blowing up the economy. The problem is, is that requires by our math, 20% nominal GDP growth for five years. And we're seeing global supply chains break down at six. Right. 6% uh, right. nominal GDP growth. Okay. Well, so sorry to interrupt, but this is really where I want to go, which is um, if any of these words I put in your mouth are wrong, correct me. Um, but it sounds like you say, look, um, you know, if we're going to die in the fire of inflation or the, the ice of deflation, looks like it's going to be fire. Uh, in fact, the, the fuse has already been lit. There's no, no way of avoiding it at this point. We, we will end up in sort of a Zimbabwe-type currency crisis at some point in the future. And it might not look exactly like Zimbabwe, but I, people understand that, right? It's, it's that the, the purchasing power of the currency gets destroyed over time as you just print way too much of it. Um, so that's, that's the get busy inflating. Um, but... Uh, you know, it's probably not going to be a straight line to there. And there are some very big factors that are right in our front windshield right now that may really slow down the economy. So when you talk about the importance of tax receipts, or we're talking about valuations, um, you know, the inputs to those, which technically are earnings, um, there, you know, the economy is now slowing down. It got juiced by all the stimulus that they sent out there, but it is now slowing down pretty quickly in a lot of parts of the world. Um, we, 
I mean, I guess this could change, but but just looking at what they're saying right now, looks like the Fed is is going to be uh, not issuing nearly as much stimulus next year as they they did in the past eighteen months. Congress is having a tough time uh, getting its fiscal stimulus uh, continuing, so we're going to have these big monetary and fiscal cliffs. But we then have the supply chain shortages that you talked about, right? We've got a, a, a debt ceiling showdown coming up. Maybe that's, you know, again, that's something we have a lot more control over than some of these other factors. But but there's a lot of things that are circulating right now that are saying, look, growth is going to slow, right? And I'd love your thoughts on, on that, just on the economic side alone. But then I want to get into potential constraints that the, the central planners have no control over. And that's sort of like resource availability, right? And we've got a lot going on in the energy market right now that I want to talk to you about in just a second. Sure. Sure. And no matter how many trillions you print tomorrow, you know, you can't print up another extra, you know, barrel of oil or, you know, BTU of, of natural gas uh, if it's needed right now. So right. anyways, how, how worried should we be about the, uh, the monkey wrench that this economic slowdown right now could, could throw into things? It's a big deal. Uh, you know, I don't think the U.S. is going back to your, your earlier point. I don't think the U.S. is a Zimbabwe, per se. I understand the, the extremes inform the means. So I do think that that's directionally. That's the issue, right, is you've got um, you, you, you've got a, the U.S. has a balance of payments problem and the, they have a balance of payments problem and they have a central bank that can cover that balance of payments problem. And so that is an inflationary um, set of circumstances. If they choose to not cover that balance of payments problem, then it's extraordinarily deflationary. And it will be what we saw from March 9th to March 18th of 2020, which was stocks down, dollar up, treasury yields up. And that's sort of the Achilles heel of the whole system. If you get U.S. assets down and treasuries down with that, with yields rising into that, that's that's let that go for a few weeks, maybe a month or two, and that, that'll kick off a death spiral um, just because of the leverage in the system and the centrality of the dollar and dollar uh, to the dollar system in the world. So I do think it's a, that's a big issue. Now, in terms of these new crosswinds that we're laying over it, I, I think they're a huge deal. Uh, I think you're 100% right that uh, the Fed claims they're going to taper. Um, we'll see. Uh, if they do, I think it's going to be an extremely short-lived and painful experience for them, um, unless unless they have some offsets to that. In other words, they can t t taper QE with the left hand, uh, but if they implement standing repo facilities with the right, it's almost like a heroin addict shooting up less heroin with the syringe in the left arm while they have an IV drip of steady state heroin in the right arm. And the answer is, is are they Great doing analogy. less heroin? They're they they maybe they're they're probably not doing less heroin. So that's the thing you have to watch for. But on the face of it, if they don't do the IV drip, the standing repo facility, or other things offsetting the removal of liquidity that QE taper would represent, that's a problem. That's deflationary, uh, without a doubt. Uh, the inability of Congress to be able to do anything on the fiscal side is um, discouraging, not surprising. Uh, ultimately. Uh, once Nancy Pelosi, et cetera's, you know, uh, personal accounts start dipping back under nine figures, they'll probably, you know, get motivated properly to, <laughs> to give something to the, to the, to the, to the bourgeois. Uh, but until then, uh, it doesn't look like they're going to get something done. And that's also problematic. And then to your point, 
you've got China uh, looking like they are really tightening as it relates to the property markets. And that's problematic because you look at the marginal buying of commodities, marginal economic growth. I mean, people forget the reason we got out of the 2008, to, you know, the, the 2008 crisis was because the Chinese ramped up property spending, right? So like this is sort of the, the deferral of pain from 08, as painful as 08 to 10 were, they'd have been a lot worse if China didn't do from 2010 till last year what they've done with property markets. And now they're trying to tamp that down. Uh, and so it's unclear to me what the contagion effects could or will be. Uh, but very clearly, I think they could be substantial through the real economy contagion. In other words, you know, when the, the, the day the phone stops ringing as a multinational supplier of building supplies into China um, or raw materials into building supplies, uh, that's going to be a scary day. And that'll be a day that the, the, the phones stop ringing right on down the line. Um, I read this great line um, in a book I'm reading called uh, The Long Game by Rush Doshi. It's about China. But these, he brought up the point that at no time in American history has any adversary or group of adversaries, the Axis powers in World War I, Axis powers in World War II, the Soviet Union at the height of their economic power, at no point did an American adversary or group of American adversaries ever total 60% of US GDP. And China surpassed that in 2014. So this is another way to add to the list that I talked about. And I'm sure there's some things I'm leaving out, something we've never seen before in American history. We have an adversary, a competitor who is more than 60% of our GDP. And so if we have this slowdown in China that appears to be happening in global in construction markets, the odds that it goes global through uh, uh, basically supply chains uh, into an economy that is highly levered, so it'll supply all the leverage you need to create a contagion elsewhere, uh, it, it's a real issue. And so the, the question to your point is, is path. Can we get deflationary periods? I think, I think we can. Uh, I think they will continue to be sharper and more brief with each passing instance. And then I think at some iteration of this process, they'll just stop going down altogether. Bad news will immediately mean bid stocks, bid assets, which at that point, policymakers will have completely lost control. And we can see this shorter, shorter, sharper has been happening for three or four years, five years. I, I think that's my working assumption is like whatever deflationary impulse we get out of this. Uh, it will probably be sharp. It will probably be brief. And then we'll get into this, hey, whoops, the Fed's going to do $3 trillion more in QE. It's not, it's not tapering, actually. Yeah, and, and that's really one of the main reasons why I, I asked that question was um, everybody watching this video is trying to figure out what's coming so that they can position prudently for it. And I think that's what's so tough about the time we're in here is maybe the the end game is actually relatively easy to predict, but the path towards it is not. And you can't just predict for the long term. You can't just position for the long term inflation today because you can get wiped out right. by these deflated uh, right. deflation uh, punctuated periods that, that happen in the interim. Um, so sadly, you're just forced to have to watch the game and have to play the game. Yep. Um, before we hop off China, I'm not a China expert. I've talked to some people recently on this program who are pretty knowledgeable about it. And uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. So uh, she uh, seemed, Prime Minister 
or Chairman C there seems to be, um, uh, you could interpret the, the, the choices he's making there right now is basically seeing the same future outcome that you've just laid out there and saying, rather than running into it, you know, doing hundred miles an hour, hitting a brick wall, I'm going to try to slow down and try to manage this crash. And I'm going to kind of try to crash early, maybe, you know, take the pain and and bite-sized steps early. Um, uh, One, I want to know if you, if you agree with that. And and two, you know, if China really does intentionally kind of throttle down, does that exacerbate the problems here for the U S you know, both in terms of um, uh, you know, trading partner flows of capital, purchaser of our treasuries, et cetera. Like, does that, if China decides to do that, does does that actually exacerbate uh, the pain that we're going to feel? Yeah, I'll take the second half first. I think absolutely it does. Ultimately, anything anywhere that slows down is going to pull forward this global sovereign debt bubble bursting that's already underway. It's going to basically pull forward the day even sooner that basically central banks have to move towards something that looks a lot like direct monetization of the debt. Um, the question then gets into, okay, who goes over the cliff first? And there's um, a lot of debate about that at the end of the day, because of the leverage, because of how big China is in, in the manner, which I just described a little bit ago. To me, it really is a case of, of sort of, you know, Three, Michael Lewis probably had the best descriptor or the best metaphor for it in, in the big short where he said, all right, it's a fight to the death in a boat between three guys and or two guys. And one guy kills the other guy, finally bludgeons him to death and then tosses him overboard only to find that he's tied to him at the waist. And I think it's something very similar here. And I think there is still a lot of there's still a lot of market participants or many market participants that think the rope tying together the U.S. and China and Europe is half mile long or a mile long or five miles long like it was earlier in their careers in the late 90s right when we had six eight 12 months from when southeast asia went over the cliff to when it showed up in u.s industrial growth and unfortunately given the relative sizes and how much higher debt is how much bigger the u.s is how much more negative the u.s's net international investment position is in other words how much how many more assets they own of ours now than they did then uh, i think that rope is six feet long eight feet long, three feet long. I don't know. Basically, as soon as, if anyone goes over the cliff, then the other guys are following. The rest are going. Short order. And, and so it's a little bit of a academic discussion of, of who's going to run into the wall first because they'll go over the cliff first. Because as soon as the first one goes over, the pace at which the others start moving toward the cliff is going to accelerate and they're going to be right over the cliff and falling as well. So I, I think it absolutely matters to answer the second part first. In terms of what do I think she's doing, um, I, I would defer to the to, to those people on that. That makes some sense. I think they are. I think he is seeing some some from what I've read some social stability issues in terms of the the gaps in wealth inequality and 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 real estate getting to be too big a part of the economy. And they're trying to sort of manage that process. Um, it's difficult to do as as we've seen certainly in certain areas with ours to do it in a uh, way that doesn't create more problems than it solves. So. That seems to be that seems to be uh, the issue. I do think some of the other things we've seen about um, uh, the direction of the economy they've they've looked to take, whether that's sort of pre-building cities uh, with the ghost cities, et cetera. Uh, I think that's was I think uh, an acknowledgement of uh, the relative 
relative valuation of resources at the time relative to the relative valuation of dollars and treasuries. I, I think uh, there was a really good article in Wall Street Journal maybe two months ago about she saying that, that they would rather have an economy built on semiconductors and manufacturing and production than on building the best ride sharing app, which I thought was a, <laughs> a direct shot at the United States, yeah. right? In terms of, you know, where I, where our economy has been evolved to basically, hey, let's create the next sort of, you know, uh, uh, unicorn, right? Uh, uh, a tech unicorn uh, versus something that's more production driven. So that would make some sense, but I would defer to those those folks on on that ultimately in terms of what she might be trying to do in terms of uh, you know directing a slowdown in the economy. Okay, great. Um, look, I could talk about this all day, but I got a bunch of other questions I want to try to squeeze in in our remaining time here. Um, let's let's get into energy. Um, and I initially was going to ask you about oil. Um, you had a really interesting uh, comment here on Twitter that I want to get to in a second. But beforehand, um, the, the world's kind of suddenly fallen into a panic around energy in general, really just over the past weekend. You know, all of a sudden we've had... Um, natural gas prices uh, shoot the moon over in Europe and Europe suddenly can't get enough of it. Um, you're having petrol lines uh, in the UK. Uh, China's suddenly implementing rolling blackouts uh, in its cities and saying, hey folks, this is gonna be the new normal fo going forward, get used to it. Um, what is going on right now? <laughs> uh, I think it is a little bit, I, I think ultimately what's going on is peak cheap oil and gas is what's really driving it. And something we've been writing about for a while for our clients has been highlighting this structural problem, which is if you look back in time at global oil production, for example, the world has produced very little new oil since 05, if you X out the growth that we saw from US shale production. And so X US shale, global oil production has not risen much. The underlying fundamental problem there is something that Matt Simmons highlighted 16 years ago in his, his book, Twilight in the Desert, about Saudi oil production, the potential that you could see a peak and rollover in Saudi oil production. And, and the issue that he repeatedly highlighted was a surprising amount of global oil production comes from a surprisingly low number of fields. And I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's something like 25 or 30 percent of the world's global oil comes from like 100 fields and they're on average 60 or 70 years old now and the average age of an oil field is 40 or 50 years and so you've got they're they're what he called super giants and giants uh in terms of their production uh and they're really really old and the geology of an oil field is is pretty typical it follows some element of you know what uh, m king hubbard m king hubbard called a the hubbard's hubbard's curve or hubbard's peak right it's a bell curve it you find it, you, you, you tap it, production rises up. At some point, you get to a maximum level of daily production, and then it, it falls off at some rate. And there are things you can do to lengthen that, to mitigate that, to there, there's a number of geological things you can do, but you can't really avoid that. And so underlaying all of the sort of um, excitement about shale over the last 10 years has been this still peak cheap oil problem. And the issue with shale in the U.S. is that it was really a function of, of expensive oil, cheap money, and an incremental technology gain of the steerable uh, pipelines, right, or steerable uh, uh, fracking pipes. And so 
that you know fracking was around 25 30 years ago they knew where these fields were 25 30 years ago oil wasn't expensive enough and having the long run steerable lines allowed the productivity gains uh, but the issue with shale is is that it, it, it's the, the the curve for that looks like it's like a straight line straight up for the first three months and then it falls off rather rapidly and so the more shale you produce the faster you need to find and produce more shale, which means you need to keep finding better and better fields. The problem is the fields are getting less and less productive. They've already produced a lot of the A fields that are onto the Bs and the C fields. So they've high graded a lot of their production. Uh, and because we're now at whatever we are, 15 million barrels a day, 14 million barrels a day, I, I don't know what the number is, but it's a huge number. It's a huge success story. But the issue is, is that once you get to that level of production, the amount of new production you have to go just to keep flat is staggering and we're not doing it. And so we've now, we, we sort of had this intervening time from call it 2010 to 2020 where shale sort of bought us some time and we're out of time. Uh, and so now, you know, the gas is there, the oil is there. It's a function of price. They're going the price is going to have to motivate, um, uh, Discovery. I think there's also been some policy issue around green and climate change and ESG that is not making things easier for these companies. Uh, but I think ultimately the real crux of the issue is peak cheap oil and gas is is here. All right. And uh, and this is what I used to talk about a lot at my former life before I, I launched Wealthion. Um, so you're you're right in the bullseye of my interest area here, uh, Luke. Um, and folks, the reason why this is so critical is because without energy, you have no economy, right? Uh, they do not they do not exist independently as much as we would love for them to. Um, energy is called the master resource because literally nothing happens without it. Um, so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Art Berman. Uh, he's a, a very seasoned uh petroleum geologist. Um, we've had him on the program before. Um, he actually predicted the higher prices earlier this year, predicted the higher prices that we're seeing now. Um, but he has referred to the U.S. shale miracle, as a lot of people called it, um, as um, you know, basically the U.S. oil industry's retirement party, um, <laughs> where it was just this, this great but very short-lived bonanza, as you just described, where you know, we went after the the cheapest and easiest to extract uh, shale wells. Um, and as you mentioned, they deplete very quickly. They deplete asymptotically, not at all like Hubbard's conventional right. oil peak. Right. Um, and we burn through all the good stuff and we just have to keep running faster and faster to get what's left, as you mentioned. And they call that um, situation the Red Queen Syndrome, yep. where in Alice in Wonderland, she said you had to keep running faster and faster just to stay in one place. That's exactly what you were talking about. And I yep. think it's also directly comparable to the inflation situation that you were talking about, which is um, as our, um, you know, uh, as our debts increase and the interest on servicing those debts increase, and as our obligations increase, um, we have to not just print to meet those, but we have to print ever more every cycle to try to meet that stuff and really just to stay in the same place. Uh, and it seems like we are sort of stuck in this uh, kind of doomed trajectory, both on the economic side and on the energy side here. Do you agree? Long term? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, short, short, answer, short of someone coming up with fusion, you know, unlimited yeah, free energy. Right. Yeah. It, and this is why I say some of these crosswinds are so bad. I, I mean, then ultimately, you know, it's, 
it's important to remember that that what's normal for the spider is chaos for the fly, right? So doom is going to be um, where, depending if you're a spider or a fly. Uh, with that said, I think the status quo of what a lot of us are used to, yeah, I think that's probably doomed in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, and I didn't I didn't mean to be you know uh, salaciously negative, but I sure, think sure. at large we all want an economy and we all want to use energy. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. It's the demand for energy is infinite, right? If I could take a helicopter everywhere I went or a G5 and, and to fly around the world whenever I wanted, that's there's always demand for energy. Uh, but when you have debt as high as we have it, you need some sort of increase in productivity uh, to both service the debt and maintain your living standards. And the problem is, is the energy return on invested energy, right? So how many barrels of oil effectively we have to invest to get a new barrel of oil has gone from, you know, 100 years ago is 100 barrels, we get back for every barrel we put into the ground raising oil. And that number's fallen dramatically. Uh, some some estimates are it's into the high single digits, right? So it's, that is a decline in productivity uh, at a time where we need, we need an increase in productivity to both service the debt and, uh, and, and increase our living standards. And so, in the intervening time, you could make the case since 1970 when we went off the uh, the gold standard. Certainly since the 80s, uh, the release valve has been interest rates. Interest rates down, 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 down. Right, and so yes, the 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 return the, the productivity of our energy supply was falling as our debts were rising, but the servicing cost of those debts were falling by rates falling towards zero, and so it all kind of worked well. Once you get to zero on rates, that that release valve, maybe you can go slightly negative as, we, as we've seen in Europe and kind of hold things together for a time, but you can't go to negative three, negative five. I mean, you, you the amounts of financial repression needed to make the math work, uh, they are doomed for the bond market, right? I mean, you, the, the, the increasingly increasingly expensive oil with the combination of increasing or increasingly rising debt and rates already at zero, you need basically some idiot to hold debt at increasingly negative nominal rates, right? So who's the idiot who's going to hold 20 trillion, 150 trillion dollars in debt at negative three percent, right? If you hold 100 trillion for round numbers at negative three percent, you've got to come up with three trillion dollars a year. You're going to lose three trillion in in value every year. Who has that balance sheet? And the answer is nobody. Well, that's not true. Central banks have that balance sheet. Their balance sheet is infinite because when they create currency, they create both an asset and a liability at the same time. So their balance sheets could go to quadrillions, uh, quintillions, whatever they wanted to. But in that world, that I think then reverberates or re re references back to your initial point about asset prices. Like, okay, well, in that world, I can't hold debt. Debt is the first thing when I say spider or fly. What's the fly in that world? The fly is the bond market. The bond market's going to get eaten by 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 in, by currency depreciation because we don't have the energy production to service the debt and grow our living standards. So they're going to have to produce currency units to basically paper over it. And if that's the case, I want to get out of bonds and I want to get into anything but bonds that better preserves that purchasing power as they create those currency units to paper over 
what at its fundamental base, I think, is this this issue that you're highlighting, which is the productivity of our energy supply is decreasing. You, you've got a you've got a peak cheap oil and gas problem. Right, right. You, you've basically got an intractable deflationary force there that um, while you're trying to inflate is just, you know, forcing you to inflate even faster. And so um, here's, here's kind of where I'm going with this, which is um, you've said, OK, look, um, given what we just talked about, which I think are real facts, right, which is cost of energy is going up. Um, energy resources are going to become more dear going forward. We've already got massive I'll use the word insolvency issues. You can pick a different word if you want, um, but uh, uh, you know we're not we're not inventing that. That that that's just the reality on the ground. So you know you're saying, look, projecting all that forward, bonds is a place you do not want to be for all the reasons that you've you just enumerated. I'm going to go back to Zimbabwe just for a second, not not because I think we're necessarily going to follow the exact same path and speed, but the stock market went up a lot, you know, in Zimbabwe, but it didn't go. But the, the pace or the rate of currency devaluation surpassed it. So even though you were, you know, having increasing equity prices, you were still losing purchasing power by owning stocks. So do you see potential for that as well here? And are there certain asset classes that are even better positioned for the type of future that you see coming? Yeah, I think if you look at some of these we hope you've been enjoying this discussion with macro researcher Luke Groman. The interview continues over in part two, where Luke provides a breakdown of the asset classes he favors for the current market environment. He also explains why he remains optimistic for the future prospects of both gold and Bitcoin. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of this video below, or go to youtube.com Wealthion. But before you go, please don't forget to hit the like button and then click the subscribe button as well as that little bell icon right next to it if you haven't already. It only takes a second and it really does help us out. As the more subscribers this channel has, the more big name experts like Luke we can attract onto this program in the future. And if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio with the risks that Luke has highlighted here, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our video interview with Luke Groman.